0: All right, if you're there, I'm actually going to read back in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, just one verse here, then I'm going to dive into this. Verse number 5. I'll come back to Luke chapter 1 and verse 5 in a few minutes once we get into this. Um, But how many here, I teach this every year, how many have never heard this yet on the defense for December 25th? Roy, put your hand down, Roy Butler. Yeah. It might be the first time you listen to it, brother. All right, that, that might be the case. All right, all right. We might have an emergency run down at the coffee pot or something like that that you have to run and check on. So if you get up, I'm sitting you back down, just so you know. I'm going to tell you that right now. <laughs> all right. Let's look at Luke 1 and verse 5. We'll come back to Luke 1 5 later. I'm just using it as a springboard to get into this here this evening. It says, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, please bless this this evening, dear Lord. I pray your hand to be upon it. Lord, I pray that you'd guide and direct, Lord, teach us your word, help us to enjoy it, just to see your hand that is in so much of everything. I pray that you would use this to strengthen our faith in you, to draw us closer to you tonight, Lord, to encourage us at how incredible your word is, and and just how much you are in control, Lord. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name, amen. When it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, there's over 300 prophecies concerning him, and it really is just incredible. I'll give you some examples of them that we're not going to turn there for time's sake. It's already 20 till. But in Genesis 49.10, we call this, by the way, those of you who've had you know, any, some theology classes, progressive revelation that God gives. So when it came to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is why there's so many prophecies. The Lord did this in what we call progressive revel- revelation. Some are telescopic, what we call it in nature, but he would give pieces at a time, more and more details about the Messiah that was to come. And each of those would be a prophecy about his coming. Genesis chapter 49. We learned in Genesis 49 that when the Messiah came, he would be of the tribe of Judah. That would be his family line. That's what the Bible tells us. We see that fulfilled when Christ is born. Both, actually both uh, uh, Mary um, and Joseph were both of the line of Judah. They were both of the family line of David, not just Joseph. So was Mary. Um, We see in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, a popular Christmas verse, that the place of his birth was prophesied, as this progressive revelation continued, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And and as we see in Luke chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, that's in fact where Jesus Christ was born. He was born in Bethlehem. Isaiah chapter seven fourteen another one of the key verses of the first coming of the Messiah, that would be that a virgin would conceive. And of course, we see that fulfilled. We see the Lord is the one appearing unto Mary. Uh, you know, Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, that a virgin would conceive. That's exactly what takes place, and it is fulfilled. Then we have the prophecy like in Jeremiah chapter 31. And I was thinking about this this afternoon when I was going over this. And that is the prophecy of the weeping of the mothers for their children. When Herod comes in and slaughters all those children, in his thinking, once the wise man went against him, he's just going to wipe out the children to wipe out this king. And, and I paused for a second just to think about that. I sat back in my chair and thought, could you imagine the sorrow that would have been in there? As these soldiers come down, looking for any child, we don't know, you know, we guess whether it's five years old and younger, he had a window in age frame based on the wise men what children were going to die. They spared nobody. I mean, just incredible. That was prophesied. So, what I want to do now is, and this is based on, a, on, a, on, a, on, on the book called Science Speaks by Dr. John Stoner. And he deals a lot with probability. Maybe in college you took a statistics class or a probability class. Some of the same things I'm going to talk about here, you would have been taught in that class. Um, this deals with odds, if you will. You hear people say it all the time. For instance, the odds of you being struck by lightning is one in 700,000. The odds of you being killed by a lightning strike is actually one in two million. Um, The odds of you becoming president is one in 10 million um, of a meteorite landing on your house. One with 14 zeros behind that thing is what it is. So it's unlikely there. Um, although some got to see it. I think Rob and Greg, did you guys get to see the rock that I had? I actually, it did not hit my house, but close to my house, we actually hit, which we don't know what it was. I can't confirm what it was because we never, we never did know, but we had this weird rock that we believe was something not of here. We don't know, but we had the, who all was involved? Uh, the museum in London, uh, MIT, UCLA, one of the colleges in Arizona, all with me discussing what we found. It was this rock that was brought to me. It hit a river where we used to go washing. It hit there. The guy said there was fire. It was smoking. And he brought it to me. And he goes, watch it at night and shake it. He had it in water. You would shake it. It would glow green. It went out of my house at that moment, by the way. I kept it underneath the house right there. I kid you not. You would shake it and it would, like, ooh, ooh, look at that. And it wasn't the reason why I hadn't water, what he noticed immediately, it wasn't stable if it wasn't in water. It would smoke, and it had a sulfuric smoke. So it could have been based on that. Several of the people involved said they thought it was probably from an underwater volcanic eruption. But they did not understand why it was not stable just in air. When it was in air, it would smoke, give off a very sulfuric, strong smell, and it would get smaller. If you didn't have it in water, soon it would not exist. I don't know how I got off on that. Uh, anyhow. Oh, yeah. Uh, idea of a uh, meteorite landed on your house and almost happened. Alright, that, that's where we're at. Alright, so, in his book, what he used was the same things you're taught in college when you take a statistics class, or probability class. And what he was doing was examining the life of Christ and what he did fulfill. And, and the principle is this. It states that the chance of one thing happening, let's say that's one in M, and you have another thing, one in N, that the likelihood of both those being fulfilled by the same person would be, would be the M times the N. If those who are in algebra class, you should be understanding what I just said. Okay, It's really not that hard. Um, so what he did was, he chose eight prophecies that Christ fulfilled, just eight. He fulfilled a whole lot more than eight prophecies already, but he chose eight. Okay, and so let me give the ones that he chose and the statistical probability of each one of those being fulfilled. The first one he took was Christ being born in Bethlehem. This would be based on the population of the day. It would not be hard to figure out. That probability that this man would be born in Bethlehem was one in 280,000. Okay, okay. Now, the second prophecy he took was the fact that Christ had a forerunner, somebody proclaiming his arrival, which was John the Baptist. That is prophesied also in Malachi chapter 3, and verse 1. We see that fulfilled in several of the Gospels, Mark chapter 1, etc., where John the Baptist arrives, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. The next prophecy he took, oh, that was one in a thousand. One in a thousand is the statistical probability of that one being fulfilled. Then Christ to enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey, all right, as is prophesied in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, and verse 9. We see that fulfilled in several of the Gospels, such as Matthew, chapter 21. That's how Christ entered Jerusalem. The statistical probability of this is 1 in 100. Christ to be betrayed by a friend, That was prophesied in Psalm chapter 41 and verse 9. That is fulfilled. Several of the Gospels, Luke 22, 21, is one example. The likelihood of this taking place, a betrayal by a friend, statistically at this time, was one in a thousand. One in a thousand. To get more specific with that, he went to the next prophecy that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That that would be the, the, the amount given when he was betrayed. That's prophesied in Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 12, fulfilled in several of the Gospels like Matthew chapter 26. They gave the same statistical probability of that, one in a thousand. The next one he used um, would be the silver cast down used to buy a, a potter's field which is prophesied in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 13, the very next verse. We see that fulfilled Matthew chapter 27. That one is much more. That is one in a hundred thousand that that would take place. Um, the prophecy in Isaiah 35 was the second to last one that he used. That's where that the Messiah would keep silent when on trial. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7. We see this taking place in several of the Gospels um, during his trial with Christ not answering. The statistical probability of this was given one in a thousand as well. And then the crucifixion itself has its prophesied and described in Psalm chapter 22. We see that being fulfilled in the Gospels, such as John chapter 19, verse 17 and 18, to get specific with what was discussed in Psalm 22. The statistical probability of this is one in 10,000. So, the biggest one we have here is one in 280,000. Most are about one in a thousand, all the way down. But to have one man fulfill just those eight the statistical probability is astronomical all right for him just to fulfill those eight those eight prophecies we don't have we don't have a, a name for this number it would be a one with 28 zeros behind it to give you an idea remember a billion has 9 a billion ha- one in a billion has 9 zeros is that right am i thinking right i don't want to hear later i was wrong i think it's 9 zeros it's 9 zeros yeah good thank you ryan yeah it's nine- if you have a billion dollars one day let me know all right um, one so 28 zeros to fulfill eight eight prophecies that is that's that's god in other words it's not going to happen But it did. But he just didn't fulfill it. Think if we put them all together what that number would be. It's incredible. In other words, there's so much screaming at us. This is true. It's not made up. This just can't happen on its own. You see a sovereign God who is in control. Now, let's go into his birth because there is much debate Since, it hasn't been, it hasn't, this debate has not taken place for 2,000 years. The debate started in the 12th century about when Christ was born. Um, And so let's get into this to see if there's biblical support for the date December 25th. Now, why is there a debate about it? The debate goes something like this that many believe, I remember I'd I'd been taught it and, and, and believed it when I heard it, that December 25th was chosen by the Roman Catholic Church during the time of great compromise when Constantine had legalized Christianity, thus bringing into the church just hundreds of thousands of unconverted, which really did happen. And at that time, paganism had a tremendous influence on the Roman Catholic Church and churches associated with it. Under Constantine, you you came into the church by law, not by conversion, you did not have to, like you do here. You did not have to agree to the, have a clear testimony of salvation, have been biblically baptized, and agree doctrinally. It was law. All of a sudden, everybody in Anchorage is a member of Independent Baptist Church of Anchorage. Well, that led to horrible conflict. Led to the worship of the Mother of God, for example. All right. So the argument became that December 25th was a compromise that the Roman Catholic Church made to make December 25th Christ's birthday, but that it was really a pagan holiday. So let's look at that. December 25th is a pagan holiday as well. Alright, it is, it's a pagan holiday, (coughs) um, primarily within the Hindu religion of their sun god. Um, They celebrated that day, December 25th. They had a huge celebration, the Mithraic Feast that would take place on the 17th to the 23rd. Um, And this, this would be honoring the Roman god Saturn, alright, um, a, a few Latin phrases that went there at that time, Diaz, Nautilus, Solus, Invicti, means birthday of the unconquered Sun," And they celebrated his birthday on December 25th, okay? Um, and that's all true. That, that, that's all true, that, that this all actually took place. And they, they simply came up with that birthday. Obviously, they obviously didn't have a real God with a real birthday that gave birth. The reason why the Romans assigned that date of December 25th was because that, at that time, was when they believed the winter solstice was, which was actually the 21st. All right? So they assigned it December 25th based on that, which, by the way, you know what happened on Wednesday? Gaining daylight. See that? <clears throat> so December 25th was the birthday of their sun god, um, and, uh, and, and that's all true. Um, matter of fact, in the pagan religion of Mithraism, the holy day was Sunday, which is why we call it Sun Day from the Sun God. that's no argument. Um, the Roman emperor at the time um, created stolen Invictus. The year he created it is important. So when did this come about? The year 274. All right The year 274. We know when this started. Third century before. that's the start date. Here's their first major problem with this, because in other documents within Christian history, establishing date as December 25th, they come prior to 274. We have in Christian writings, dates pointing to December 25th for the birthday of Christ as early back as 200 AD, almost 100 years before this date was ever even created. <clears throat> so that puts a huge kink. So then how did all this come about? Well, we know. Let's see. How did all this come about? Too often what happens is this. This is very true. I've been guilty of this in my Christian life. You just read something somewhere, and you grab onto it. You read it in one little book, you grab onto it, and that's it, without ever researching it. Literally, you're just, you could very well just be reading a man's opinion who has an ax to grind, Really? You had better learn to research things, because that's exactly what happened with December 25th. Get this. There was never a debate about it until, as I already mentioned, the 12th century. Well, what happened in the 12th century? There was a scholar who made a note and made a connection at that time between December 25th, the sun, God, and the birth of Christ. And he actually did a side note in his writing that, hey this I don't know if he said likely, it's, that's my phrase, but he did point to a compromise by the Roman Catholic Church just to make this the birth of Christ. Well, when that got read, people jumped on it without anything else. That, that, that side note became the foundation for this position that December 25th was a compromise created by the Roman Catholic Church and they just came up with December 25th and made it the birth of Christ. Um, so it started, it started almost nine, well, not almost, about 900 years after the creation of the December 25th sun god. That's when this argument came about, 900 years later, all right? Um, and it, again, it is true that in the 4th century, paganism had a tremendous influence within, quote, Christendom in the Roman Catholic Church. It did. Um. But the date, 20, December 25th, does have a lot of merit, all right? Not the least of which is what I've already brought up, that we have it in Christian writings before 274, that they believe the date was December 25th, okay? So how do we get there? first thing we have to talk about is the Hebrew calendar. It is different than ours. Their first month is, is the month of Nisan, which is our, our mid-April to our or, excuse me, not our mid our March to mid April. They have 354 days, not 365 days. It doesn't line up perfectly. Um, and so, but we can still piece things together. We still do that today with many things, not just establishing what I'm getting ready to right now. So, their calendar doesn't exactly line up, but we, we, we can match them uh, uh, pretty decently. And it's in Nisan, that first month that they celebrate the Passover, Israel's deliverance from, from Egypt, which is amazing how that would also correspond. About the time Christ was crucified, it just makes sense how God put it together with the Passover. It's just, there's just so much that shows God's in control and how incredible his word is and his, his sovereignty, his hand in everything. So, knowing that, what does this have to do with Christ's birth? First Chronicles chapter 24. Let's go to First Chronicles 24. I remember an example of latching on to something without researching it. I was at a pastor's school when I was a teenager. I didn't even know what the word meant at the time. I did not. I'm still growing in my faith. And I kid you not. And the main speaker got up and he was preaching hard. And I enjoyed hard preaching. I did. I liked it. And he wasn't preaching on this, but it came out in a sermon as he was blasting anything and everything. He preached against expository sermons. I don't know what it was. I mean, he took about two minutes to... Just bash it that if you're, you were doing that. And I was, amen. I don't know what it is, but I'm against it now. And, uh, and I remember, though, I was just a couple years later, I was about 19 or 20, and I actually figured out, I'm starting Bible college, I, what expository preaching was. And I remember going right back to that moment and thinking, and this guy was one of my heroes at the time. I'm thinking, how could he possibly be against that? I'm just stunned. So that's where you get something just grabbing on to something because somebody does it without actually looking into it. <clears throat> so 1 Chronicles chapter 24, look at verse number 5. Thus were they divided by lot, this is under King David's authority, one sort with another, for the governors of the sanctuary and the governors of the house of God were the sons of Eleazar, Aaron, and the sons of Ithmar. So it's establishing here, what we're seeing here take place in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, is that there's going to be a lot system assigned to the children of Aaron, the Levites, for when they would work on the house of God, the temple. All right, Tabernacle, David doesn't have the temple up yet, but this is when they're going to be assigned their work, because it was the Levites' responsibility. They were the ones that have to do this. So what's happening here they're putting structure to it, and they're putting order to it right here. Each group of priests would serve according to a scheduled time, and they, they determined who would do what when by the casting of lots. Okay? So... Basically, what they have is they have all the different family groups. They broke into 24 family groups. They're going to use lots to determine for a 12-month time period when each family group would head to the temple or tabernacle and serve and minister. Does everybody follow me on that? Okay. Uh, let look at verse number... Let's drop down here in, in chapter 24. <clears throat> Um, I'm not going to read all of it. Verse 7, you see the lots are casting. And I'm trying to find the one that... Are, uh, verse number 10. The seventh to goes, the eighth to Abijah. So the eighth month was the family of Abijah. So that tells us, this is important, we know when this family line would be serving at the temple. We can nail that down. Now, let's go back to Luke. Let's go back to Luke. That family was assigned the eighth course. They would fulfill their service during that eighth month time frame. And would be, there's 24. It's going to be divided into two weeks and two weeks. Okay? Now, Luke, chapter 1, verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, Abijah, which we just read in First Chronicles chapter 24, same family name. This is his course. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. That sort of blows away some of those little images you have of Mary and Elizabeth being about the same age. They were not. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God, in the order of his course, make no mistake, that wording is not there by accident. It's telling us that Zacharias is there right when he should be, in the eighth month. That's when he's there. All right? Uh, According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went unto the temple of the Lord. Let's stop right there. So, Zacharias, who is the father of John the Baptist, served in the eighth month. All right? We see that taking place right here. This is going to to correspond to our calendar mid-October to mid-November. Mid-October, so he's going to serve a two-week window in there in that time frame. Mid-October to mid-November. Now, we're going to jump on this and put him right at the first course of that. Mid-November, he's going to serve us two weeks, so he's going to be finishing up... At the very end of our October, he had to be done. Around October 31st is when he's going to finish. All right? Um, so that's what we're dealing with. That's when this is taking place. And again, this is, this is, this is a study done that I, I have not researched. This is, this is a book I read on this. John Stormer, well-known author. This is when I came across this, by the way. Um, now, let's continue on with Luke. This is interesting. So we know when he's there... All right. Look at verse 23. The angel appears unto him, which is really just incredible. If you think of what's happening here. He's going in, I mean, by himself, Gabriel appears unto him. He lets him know that his wife is going to conceive. Look at verse 23. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, so he finished his course. He didn't leave right away when Gabriel left. He finished his work. So we know when he went home. He departed to his own house, and after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. So he heads home. Around October 31st, he gets home. Now he hasn't been, he hasn't seen his wife for at least a few weeks. Right now, he's home now. It's like you assume he's not waiting; he's with his wife. It's likely to, what, what the only assumption I'm making right now to make this stick, which is. It, it, just using, um, what's the word I'm looking for, deductive reasoning, it makes sense. He gets home. Gabriel already told him, by the way, when you are going to meet wife, she's going to conceive. So assuming she conceived as soon as he got home, that establishes the time frame for her pregnancy. Let's read on in verse 24. She hid herself five months. So let's say around the 1st of November, October 31st, she's now a child. She conceives. He comes home. He's with his wife. Uh, she, she conceives or, as we'll say the word people like, she gets pregnant. All right? So we have November, December, January, February, March. You follow me? She hid herself all those months on our calendar. She hid herself through the end of March. Let's read on. Then hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked upon me to take away my approach from my men. And in the sixth month, the sixth month of what? Of Elizabeth's pregnancy. The angel Gabriel was sent from God. Unto the city of Galilee. Named Nazareth. Why was he going to Nazareth? To announce to Mary. She will conceive. In the sixth month. So let's follow this. Let's break this down. So that, that then is established for us. a time frame. When Mary was with child. So. Somewhere right around March 31st on our calendar is when this would have took place. The start of the sixth month. And if we use March 31st, which is incredibly reasonable. It's the first date that we could possibly pick. Is that date. The the normal gestation time of of one of our children is 270 days. That's what it is. March 31st at 270 days. Guess what day that falls on? December the 25th. December the 25th. That's just incredible. Now, have you ever heard the argument? Well, we believe it's spring because of several different factors they give. Again, it's just what people just don't research. Well, the lambs are being born. This is going to take place in this month or this month in the fall. Remember, I've heard that. Um, so is that true? What's interesting about lambs, a lot has to do with where they're at geographically speaking. So before here, I never did this before here. I mean, I did establish this point every time I've taught this. But I decided before I came in here to Google this statement. So it, not going to any Christian site. Nobody, so nobody has a dog in this fight to try and deceive or, you know how people are. They'll just pull things out of context to support their position. So I just Googled straight, what time of the year are lambs born in Israel? I'll quote it to you. I didn't even have to click on the link. Boom, paragraph came up immediately. Boom, had it in statement right there. Let's see. That's on a whole other page. I don't know where I'm even at now. Oh, it's down here. I'll quote: the principal lambing season uh, um, is in. um, Well, that's a different country. I know. Obviously, I cut and paste. One of them was November, but it goes on, Um, and then it goes on to say, uh, in Lebanon, Syria, Israel, is December to January. December to January. That's when it is. All right. That's when it took place. So that's additional support for a December birth of the Savior. You say, well, what do you mean? Because the shepherds were out in the field at night. They didn't work 24 hours a day. They didn't have 24-hour shifts on lamps. There's only one time, there's only a certain time of the year that they would be with the sheep at night. That's if they were ready uh, to give birth to the lambs. They would need to be there in case anything was going wrong. So they would be there during the night. Well, that's when the angel appeared to them. They were still there. So it makes sense that they're in Israel. They're out at night watching over their sheep. Well, why would they be there? Because it should be what that's telling us is it's the likely time that the lambs are going to be, that the females are going to be giving birth. Which would be mid-December to end of December. Incredible. Incredible. And so, and by the way, in his book, he didn't go that route that I just looked, but he also establishes how there, that that is the time frame. He, went, he called some ranchers up in his book, is what he did. He called ranchers up and said, hey, I'm doing this research. What's the likelihood they were, th- that they were going to be born in December? And, and the ranchry contact said, no, that's when they would be born. That is correct. Um, so we have these... These different verifications taking place of pointing to, in fact, a December birth of Christ. And there's other things you can get into, get it. Different writings, again, that are getting even pre-4th century, that do talk about it and have dates all around that time frame of December 25th. I think the latest one I had found was a January 6th speculation, but all of it right around that time. It wasn't until this different argument came up going 900 years later, that people started guessing and speculating, spring and fall, and all these and all these other things coming up. And uh, um, <clears throat> and then the other argument you see with people, and, I, and I've heard this as well, because you just read it in a commentary uh, or, or a book, and and and, and you'll learn that that they would not have been outside. It couldn't have been December because it would have been too cold. They would have kept them indoors. They weren't born in Anchorage. They weren't born in Iowa. They weren't born in South Dakota. They're not in Montana. Again, I Googled again before I came in here just to make sure what is the average temperature of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is six miles from Jerusalem, so it's a bigger city. That's why I chose that one. What is the average temperature of Jerusalem in December? 56 to 61 degrees. It's thirty-five degrees outside. Because, again, the same mistake you make earlier with the birth of the lambs, you assume it like the culture you're in. Instead of looking, well, how did it happen when this happened? That's what you have to look at. So again, there is another verification that December is a very likely time frame. All right, so let me finish up with this. And I did this last year. I'm going to do this again. And that is the Christmas tree. All right. The origins of the Christmas tree, because that is also debated. That is also debated as as where that came from. Um, again, you have you have some arguments that is purely of pagan background, and so is that true? It is the origin of how Christians began to use it of pagan background? It is not. This is from a research done by John R. Rice um, on a book that he wrote about uh, observing Christmas. And I'll, I'll read from him his section on this. And I knew that I'd read this before in other books too. This isn't the first time I came across this. this would have been in John R. Rice's book. I, I'd known this back uh, in my early 20s when I began diving into how did it come about. Because it is curious. We're setting up a tree in our house. Where does that come from? And uh, um, a lot of times it's the verse, which I should have looked up before I, I got here. What happens is, is, is it the verse in Isaiah where it talks about where pagans did worship a tree and they decorate it. And, and people see that and say, that's it. we got paganism in our house. Get it out. Um, But that's not the origin of how this came about. In the 8th century, a missionary named Boniface went to Germany to preach Christ. The Germanic tribes, uh, they worshipped, of course, a false deity, a false god. They worshipped the oak tree. All right? They worshipped the oak tree. And so the missionary knew he has to change this. He has to change this thing. And so... um, he had let them know that the oak tree, part of his preaching and teaching was the oak tree was, this, it was really a, a, a poor, even a symbol for God. It's not God. It's not even a good symbol for God. It sheds its leaves. It appears to die each winter. And he said the, the only tree he could see that it is, is, would be a symbol of the true God who's in heaven, who created all things, would be the evergreen because it doesn't die. And so that was part of his teaching that he used. Then later it said that Martin Luther was the one who began to tie that in with Christ's birth. And then it was through that influence that the Christmas trees became popular in England through the influence of a German-born Prince Albert. All right, he was the, and so then it started becoming a custom based on what happened in Germany in, in representing a, a tree, that an evergreen, and they tied it into Christmas as a tradition. Um, That's very similar to how it was introduced in America. It had a German influence as well. The Dutch were the ones bringing that in, the immigrants, of introducing using the Christmas tree there. Now, that's purely up to everybody's decision. You're not wrong or right whether you choose to or not to. But you do need to know the actual origins of it, of how it did get started. And then you can make your own choice from there. Um, That that doesn't matter to me whatsoever. Um, But the Christmas tree certainly does have a Christian origin, not a pagan origin. And it's not forbidden, therefore, in Scripture. Uh, but that, that is up to you. The Bible says, let every man pre- be persuaded in his own man. One man lifts up one day more than another. One of my very good friends, another missionary was in New Guinea, matter of fact, I talked to him yesterday for 35 minutes. He's a good, godly man doing something for the Lord, and he will have nothing to do with Christmas period. Nothing at all. He's still a good guy. The Bible says one man, you know, lifts up one day over another. I, I don't come down on him for him. He doesn't come down on me for, for celebrating Christmas. It doesn't matter. So, anyhow... Um, it's fascinating. I, I really, it, to me, it's just incredible to see how much God is in control. You know, like God was up in heaven saying, oh man, they messed that data. He really is in control. He knows what he's doing. I think it was Roy texted me about having confidence in God. Uh, 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 he sent me a quote, I think, by Tozer yesterday. I'm like, well, who else can we have confidence in? There is none else. I mean, really, he knows what he's doing. And it's every head bowed and every eye closed. We still will go into a time of invitation. I know this wasn't preaching and along those lines, but there might be something heavy on your heart you need to come and bring before the Lord. We certainly want to give time for you to do that. And if there's anyone here, say, Pastor, listen, even from this morning, now, this thing of my salvation is bothering me. Please, I need you to pray for me. Anybody here like that right now? I'll just raise your hand where I can see it. All right. Father in heaven, bless this invitation. Work hearts and lives. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's